Good morning, VCF. I'm really happy to be here with you. And uh, I'd like to make one announcement that um, I'm sure will be uh, good news to many of you. We have set July 4th to be our first service in which we will all come together, or those of us who are able to make it or feel safe enough to come, uh, face-to-face, in person. So July 4th is about three weeks away. And I want to invite you to start making preparations to come. You know, we do not see this coming back together together um, face-to-face and uh, in person as just a relief from a year and a half of COVID uh, restrictions. Uh, actually, the year and a half has been one in which God has been doing a lot in our church. We actually see the 4th of July when we come together as the culmination of much of m- much that God has done. Actually, Daniel was telling me that we have over 50 pages of testimonies, of answered prayers, miracles, uh, uh, healings, tremendous, tremendous things that have been taking place uh, over the past one and a half years. And I see this time that we have set out to come back together face-to-face and in person as the culmination of all the things that God's been doing. He's been preparing our church in prayer. And uh, I must say that in spite of the difficulty and the great um, um, anguish at times that many of us have felt during uh, COVID-19, there has been a definite highway, a raised highway of God moving through the church. And I feel that what God is bringing back to the church as, as far as the congregation is concerned is a different, almost a different congregation. In that respect, I want to invite you to, in the next three weeks, begin to pray for those who are in the congregation that you've not seen for a while. Begin to start praying for them. There are many who perhaps maybe are not hearing this message that I'm giving to you, that we are coming back on the 4th. There are many who have actually really missed church to such an extent and for some reason have found it very difficult to uh, log on or to track with us uh, in the live stream. I want to invite you to just allow God to use you to be a vehicle to call people home to, 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 in, 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 a, in a sense so that this will be a coming home for many of us. Uh, And so I want to invite us to really pray. I believe these next three weeks is actually a very uh, crucial time for us to build up in prayer. We don't just crawl back on the 4th of July, but we actually build up in prayer. You know, uh, Psalm 68, when uh, the psalmist is speaking about the Ark of the Covenant or the the presence of the Lord coming back to the mountain of the Lord, to to his place, there's, it begins with, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. And I don't see these three weeks as a sort of a waiting time, but actually a building up time. And I want to invite you to join us for our daily prayer and for all the prayers that we have regularly, because it is in this prayer where God builds up our spirit to such an extent, our spirit is strong to be able to go to what God has for us um, in the future. So I want to invite you to take note of July 4th, uh, we meet at 10 o'clock, in case anybody forgot. <laughs> and uh, we will be meeting together for those who can, who can make it on the 4th of July. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done, for the great signs and wonders and miracles that you have, that we have experienced so many, even up to today, have experienced your presence, your strengthening, your disciplining, your formation the wonderful things that have taken place in the midst of tremendous misery. We thank you that in the past one and a half years or so, you have changed the church to such an extent that we are not quite the same people anymore. You have thickened the time between COVID-19's beginning and today. And so we ask you even now, for an even greater move of the Holy Spirit than we've ever seen before. We invite your presence to fill these three weeks and move in such a way that um, many people will feel like they're coming home to you. And so we commit 
our time into your hands. We ask you to speak to us. We ask you that you speak so directly to us in a way that only a God can speak, in such a way that we do not feel spoken to en masse, but spoken to personally. Come and speak to us, Lord, we pray. Do that miracle that you promised to do, to break the bread of life and to distribute it in such a way that there may be 5,000 or 6,000 or 7,000 listening, and yet it will feel that you are speaking to one person, ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Today I'd like to um, speak to you, for our third, uh, actually fourth, including uh, Jiang's sermon last week, the sermon on highways. And uh, the passage that I'm going to be, we'll be looking at is actually Mark chapter 10, and it will speak of another roadway that I feel is significant. So turn with me to, to Mark chapter 10, we'll read it from verse 46, okay? I'm reading from the NASB. Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimius, the son of Timius, was sitting by the road. It's interesting that Bartimius, Bar means son of, Timius really means the son of blind. Timius means blind. In that sense, Bartimius has a name that defines him as the blind. I'm the son of the blind and I'm blind myself. There's no other name, no other identification or identity uh, given to Bartimaeus except the fact that he was blind. The son of Timaeus was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus, verse 47, the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. And so they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, old boy. Stand up. Cheer up. He is calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? It seems like a kind of an obvious question, but I think there's something behind the, that obvious question that Jesus asked. And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. The road is important here because of the, it was the road that Jesus was traveling on. And on that road that Jesus was traveling on through, through Jericho, there were a large number of people, large crowds following him. And along the way, Miracles were taking place. Jesus was doing, working his works. He was speaking. The highway or the way that he was taking was the happening way, the way in which God was working. There was a way in which the road was a, a kind of a miracle road. It was a road that had the presence of Jesus. And it was the road in which God was moving uh, my, very mightily. And there, were large, there was a large crowd following him. But there was Bartimius, of course, the person who's uh, blind, who was sitting by the road. That means he's sitting outside of the road. He's in some ways a bystander, bystander who's sitting. And uh, he was out, out of it. He was out of this flow of God's miracles and God's reality. And today I'd like to address this way in which we can actually feel sometimes outside of the flow of what God's doing. Um, as a church, over the past year and a half, we've seen God do tremendous things. But at the same time as that is happening, and we are experiencing like the flow of that river of God, there are several who are wondering, I'm sure, why is it not happening to me? I seem a little out of it, or greatly out of it, and uh, why is it God doesn't seem to be working in my life? And why is he working in that person's life and not mine? I want to address that because of the fact that sometimes we can feel like we're sitting by the road, but not on it. We're sitting by it and not on it. Uh, we're not on it with God. 
for many of us during this period, and perhaps even before, COVID-19 has caused you to not be on it in life, not just with God, but in life, because of the fact that perhaps tragedy has, has happened. We know a number of people who have lost dear loved ones uh, during this whole period. And you can feel as if I'm out of life. Life has passed me by. There are some of us who have been Christian for a long time. Uh, and uh, in all that, you've lo- looked at other Christians experiencing God's tremendous presence, His reality, His intimacy, His miracles, and yet you're saying, this thing is passing me by. I want to speak especially to those of us who are feeling the need to somehow not be sidelined by God. You somehow feel sidelined by Him. And as a result of that, the presence and the reality of God is somehow just going somewhere else. And you're asking, how can I experience God's reality in my life? How can I catch up? Or perhaps I'm so out of it that um, it's too late. Is it too late? You somehow feel kind of out of pace with the move of God, perhaps? And uh, as I said before, it sometimes can feel as if God, you know, whenever, whenever you come into the room, he goes to the other side of the room. I felt that for, for a long time. I felt that God would answer everybody else's prayers except myself. I've been in situations in which I feel, I felt, as I said before, uh, specially chosen not to be so chosen. And sometimes the statistics of it actually makes it really hard for us because we feel as if we are one in a million and how is God going to throw a stone so that it will hit me when there are millions of other people? So statistics can actually sometimes be unhelpful. And so I want to speak especially to that. So let's have a look at this, right? Uh, let's read it from verse 46. And then they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimius, the son of Timius, was sitting by the road. And as, you, as, as I said before, Bartimius was defined by his blindness. He was defined by his condition. And there are things that can sometimes define us and, 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 and we accept as a definition given by others that can cause our sense of self to be, uh, to be shaped by and by caused by our history or our particular condition. And there are some of us who feel like, well, perhaps I'm, there's things that have happened to me that have now defined me. They have limited me. They've locked me in. Perhaps some bad choices. Perhaps some sins. Perhaps my ethnicity. Perhaps what my school or my people or my friends or, my, or, or those in authority say is my identity. I think we are living in times in which the identity, identity is constantly being imposed upon us by virtue of uh, our own uh, particular particularities, whether our physical condition, uh, the way we look, our race, our education, our upbringing, or our, these historical accidents that have taken place to us. And there's some, something about definition of ourselves. We can be something that we can take upon ourselves and cause us to feel somehow out of it or uh, sideline or not chosen or not a uh, candidate for God's move. And I want to say, especially to those of you who uh, perhaps like Bartimius, son of Timius, son of blind, so to speak, son of blind, you have a genealogy or perhaps you have a family history that has perhaps caused you to be the product of that family, the product of the, those family dynamics. Perhaps you have come from a broken family in which your parents have somehow uh, caused your de- self-definition to be somehow broken. And I want to say this, that Timius, Timius the blind, has a way of defining. And the constantly, every day, when we go to work, we go to school, and we, when we mix with people, and we, we, are, on the, we, are, we are on the radio or the, fo- or, or the, or the phone or, the, or social media, we are constantly being defined outside. And there are some people who would be defining themselves by branding themselves. I want to put it to you, you are not your brand. No matter how hard you try to brand yourself, there are ways in which we can actually brand ourselves because it looks attractive, it, we, we, are, we, are, we, are, we like it, but in the end, that branding actually causes us to be outside of the great scope of what God has for, for, for us. 
And I want to put it to you that the first thing that causes us to be outside of the highway, of the move of God, of the reality of God, is our own particular self-definitions or definitions that have been given to us uh, by virtue of whatever, skin color, education, ability, um, body, body type, all that. And the first thing that we see is that um, uh, Bartimaeus was somehow sidelined and somehow outside of God's wonderful presence. And God wants to break that today. You are not how you have been defined. You are not how uh, the world defines you. You are not even how you define yourself, not even how your parents have defined yourself, not even your friends, not even your confidants have defined yourself. Sometimes confidants can actually define ourselves in such a way that it's positive, but it's limiting. And so I want to, I want to say this. This is, this is something that's, that's, that's uh, perhaps important for some of us who are here, who are listening here, in, in, in virtually here, but who are listening. I want to say perhaps you feel out of pace with God. Is it too late? May I say to you, it is not too late. As long as the, the scripture says, as, as long as it's today, it's not too late. As long as you can call today, today, God is present in, in our today's. So let's, let's keep going. So this is Bartimaeus. It's called Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, son of blind. What a name. The son of blind was sitting by the road, by the road, not on the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And you can see this, this, this way in which he's coming up against all the pushbacks that come from what people think and what people say. They sternly made, made him, made, made him, tried to make him stop speaking. He was, in that sense, a nuisance. In that sense, he was uh, destroying the peace of their wonderful service that they were having with Jesus. But actually, something more is going on. Something more is going on. I want to say that um, what we see in Bartimaeus is later on spoken of as faith. Your faith has made you healed. Jesus didn't even say, I have made you heal. Of course, he was the one who was making you. But he was pointing out to the fact that there was some dynamic. And that faith had actually had power. That faith, Jesus is saying, had power to change the very definition of his life. To make him no longer Bartimaeus, no longer defined by his blindness, but by, defined by, by, by being defined by something completely out of this world. And it is in this that I think that we can, if we look very carefully about what this, how this faith is revealed, how this faith actually works, we may come to conclusions that are not just the fact that he really, really believed. I want to put it to you that actually it's not just that he really, really, really believed, as if he could kind of stick his belief to the sticking place and sort of really, oh, screw up his mind so that he could really believe. No, I want to, I want to put it to you that faith is something more than that and something perhaps even less than that. Let's have a look at this. Um, look, notice the way he was, he was calling out. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. He knew that son of David was the Messiah, the designation for the Messiah. They would actually break in to all of history. He understood that the Messiah would break into all of history, no matter what happened. So when he was saying, son of David, he's saying, you have the power to break into my history. No matter what happened up to now, no matter, no matter what the road has been that I've been traveling on or the road that I've been missing in, you, son of David, have the power to break that, to break the, the, the controlling factors of that antecedent or that, all the things that have, have been, uh, been coming before then. That's an amazing thing. You have the power to break the statistical absolutes that come from the fact that there's such a large crowd, I'm just one small Small little fuck in a, in a, in a, in a, in a large crowd. You have the power to actually de determine 
by the very presence of your son of Davidness, that everything can change. And it was compelling enough for the man, as he weighed up the two values that he had, one, that he would not be a disturbance, that he would be accepted by the crowd, or that he would somehow not cause, cause this awkwardness, and the fact that he could actually have a completely changed life, and he weighed those two, two, two up, those two things, and I would guess that the power and the hold that caring what people thought, staying out of trouble, and having a peaceful day in the sun, began to be less compelling than the fact that he could be on the road with Jesus and that he could be part of Jesus' presence and miracle-working power. That he did not have to have a dead religion in which he's doing everything that he can to be a good Christian boy, to becoming someone who's been folded in by beauty itself, folded in by goodness himself, folded in by healing himself. And as he weighed up the two things, I guess the hole and the ropes that caring what people think and being smooth and not awkward began to loose their hold upon his soul to such an extent that he found the presence, the gravity, the density, and the goodness of Jesus so much more compelling that he rose above the stern warnings of the crowd. He rose above the statistics that made him just one in a hundred or several hundreds or thousands, whatever, however many there were. I guess he rose up above that. And I will put it to you that faith is not just really, really, really believing, but faith has to do with some compelling power and I will put it to you that it is actually from the other side, from God, that gives us a reason to be not caring two hoots about what people think about us. It is more powerful than the bondage of the fear of awkwardness. awkwardness. It is more powerful than the determinism of statistics. It is more powerful than what people think and social uh, acceptance, social uh, the social network acceptance, it was more powerful than anything else. And I suppose it was easier for him because he couldn't see those crowds. He was blind after all, right? And perhaps that helped him completely. In some ways, he had to close his eyes, or he was already closed, to all that that was going on, all the, so- the media of, soci- of society that was actually causing him to say, stay in your place, you are just that. You, are, you have a nice definition and that definition will keep you, it will cause you to, to stay safe. And uh, many of you know that, many of us know that actually these blind people who are beggars would wear a special cloak, the cloak that would define them. And that people would actually, because of the Jewish kind of custom of, of giving alms and all that, would sort of give him a certain social security. But it would define him. And I suppose what, the, what, um, what uh, Bartimius had come up against is something that I hope that every one of us will come up against today. And that is the fact that what is more compelling is not that we just be a good, quiet Christian boy or girl, or that we become a person that follows in the tradition of our parents, which are just as blind as us, or that we are beggars, spiritual beggars, on the side of the road when actually we can be having riches with God and, have, and, and being spiritually rich with God, that we would not be somehow side-footed and side-stepped by the, by the, the flow of the road. Ah, I wonder whether that's true. Wonder that, whether that is something that can happen for us today. I pray that God will actually do that work. Amen? God is here, and He is passing by. And I want to put it, put it to you that actually you may have lost opportunities in the past, the pa- opportunities that passed you by, and because of that you feel sidelined. 
perhaps you felt that God is not real. Perhaps there are some of us who have experienced the flow of God's reality in our life, but somehow it's passed by and it's not there anymore. I want to say to you that God is because he's here, he wants to draw you in again and bring you home. There's something about that that I feel is, 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 is really uh, important. I just want to say something about statistics. Statistics can sometimes be very absolutized and actually very, very damning. Uh, statistically, uh, I'm told that um, 10%, uh, sorry, t- I'm, I'm told that um, uh, between 2003 and 2011, uh, a man by the name of uh, George Barner and, and a partner, Kuhneman, wrote uh, a book called You've Lost Me. And he talks about statistics in which um, about 50, let's see, I'm going to make sure I give you the right ones. 59% of adults, young adults, dropped out somewhere in their 20s uh, of Christianity. There were about 59% of young adults, they dropped out of their Christian faith, at least for a time in their 20s. Eight years later, 2011, that figure increased to 64%. Nearly two-thirds of U.S. 18 to 29 years of age Christians who grew up in church left the church somewhere in their 20s. These are pretty heavy statistics. The thing about these statistics are sometimes that they can be so determinative that we feel that, that there's very little chance of us surviving our 20s, our 18 to the, the, the survey was done for people of the age, between the age of 18 and 29. You can look at statistics, and there's a way of looking at statistics and looking at flat statistics and find that these statistics are so deterministic that you can't escape them. And yet statistics are just a flat way of looking at things. These are statistics that, have, that can be seen as just two-dimensional, just flat. Actually, statistics are the ways in which we ourselves allow, can sometimes allow ourselves to be trapped in a two-dimensional reality. Statistics. Statistics. The funny thing is this, in 2011, around that time, Kuhneman and another writer began to do another survey. And he found that in this survey, throughout this period between 2003 to 2011 and beyond, um, young, there, was, there was a call of young adults, 10% actually, of Christian young adults between 18 and 29, who actually retained their faith, became strong, and actually did tremendous things. They were qualitatively different from most other Christians. And in the book, um, Faith, Faith for Exiles, Kuhneman and Etal actually talk about the quality of life that he had. And instead of a flat, two-dimensional, statistical kind of... Uh, uh, kind of a, 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 a kind of survey. What you see is dimensionality. So much so that in the midst of all that, there was things that, that were going on that were very very dynamic among this this ten percent. They call them the resilient ones, the res, the resilient exiles. And among them, you see qualitative things. Just un, under the surface of these these statistics, you see actually amazing things. They are making an impact in the world around them. They are, they are, they are, their Christianity is very, very real, very, very vital. They see miracles happening. They have a quiet time. They hear God speaking to them. They are in touch with God. They have intimacy with God. It is almost as if, if you don't see those statistics, you will look at the top, top, top layer of statistics, statistics like they are they're like just inert statistics, and you will think there is no hope. And yet underneath it, there's something more that God's doing. You know, the thing about it is this, that God actually is not just a God that is limited to the statistics. See, we are people 
who cannot think in big numbers. We, the moment we think about more than two or three people, or for some of us, a hundred people or more than that, we become abstract. That means we, we lose the particularities and the individual particular, particularities of everything that we see. And actually, we just put a blanket statistic in which everybody falls into that, that statistic. Our statistics are inert, flat stats. They're just inert, flat stats. And yet, that's just the way human beings look at big numbers. You know, you look at the big number and you see 64 million babies have been aborted since Roe versus Wade. And your mind cannot even compute it. You can't even catch, catch, catch hold of it. You think about the fact that 800,000 babies have been aborted every year or thereabouts. Some years it's about 700,000. Sometimes it's more. And you can't even get your mind around it because we, our minds are weak. Our minds don't have the power to be able to individualize every number in that statistic. But God's not like that, you see. God is not like that. He can look at the world and he took look at all of us and he can think of all of us as every single one of us. He does not love anyone. He loves everyone. And when we say that he loves everyone, he is able to hold in his heart with full and intensive, infinitely intensive intensity and personality, person, per, yeah, personalness, the very value of every single one of these billions of people in the world. That's really important, see, because of the fact that our minds do a number on us when we, when we hit numbers that are bigger than not very big. We become abstract. So we go to college and we become abstract. We think in the, in the realms of abstract. We've lost the ability to think in the personal, in the same way that God speaks to us when He's personal. When we say God is personally present, it means that His attentiveness towards each individual person is infinite. That means we can be in a group, or, uh, in, a, in a crowd of thousands of people, like, uh, or, or in a large crowd that Bartimaeus was in, and we see that God was personal to him. So much so that statistics are no longer the operative principle. If you think of statistics as an operative dynamic, you will be completely wrong. You will be completely on the other side of God. God is not like that. The dynamic lies not in the statistics. Stati statistical judgments is what, are, are what, what we as human beings may make because we don't have the power in our mind to deal with in each individual. And so because of that, may I suggest to you that statistics can sometimes make us feel hopeless and make us hopeless because of these, what I call, inert, flat stats. But there's an, there's, an, there's an element of dimensionality. Under, underneath the flat thing, there is a dimensionality that is everything. Because God is in Christ Jesus calling you and me out of the statistics, out of the determinism, out of the flat stats. He's there and he's infinitely deep in his calling of you and me. Outside, out of the percentage number that you're in, Outside of all that. Isn't that amazing? God is not like us. When he thinks about all the 800 that have been aborted today, in this year, he cares for every single one of them. Isn't that wonderful? He loves us so much. He loves you and me so much that he does not wash us away with the crowds. And if you have felt unloved out of it, out of the, 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 the thoroughfare of where Jesus is going, God is after you. Him and the, the blind man, Bartimaeus, the most disadvantaged of all, is a good example of how God actually works. Let's have a look at it. He, he broke through. He broke through because he, he found com more compelling the need to be healed and to need, need to be given a new life than staying in his place and not causing offense. 
And I would want to put it to you that actually this, this breaking through awkwardness is a really important thing. Not because you've got to do all that stuff, but because of the fact that God is with you. Perhaps in you, in your heart today, as we are speaking, God is putting in you a compelling reason, a compelling force, a compelling desire to break out and not care what people think. Let's go, let's move on. What, did, what happened? They, sternly, they were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more. Isn't that amazing? When, get, when the Spirit gets a hold of you, you actually don't diminish or, or hold on in your strength or calling out. You actually do it even more. Isn't that amazing? What was happening is that he wasn't being driven by the same kind of dynamics, human dynamics, that other people were using to sternly warn him. He was actually functioning by a whole different engine. He was functioning by a whole different divine impulse that was going on. And if you call on the Lord today, beyond the statistics, beyond the stern warnings, beyond the, 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 the way in which society wants to just be lumped into these now well-defined groups, you will call on the name of the Lord and you will be an individual that will transcend your statistics. Amen? And Jesus stopped. It says in verse 49, as he called out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped. And I just want to stop here. When Jesus stopped, everything stops. When Jesus stops, when the God of the universe stops, he affords us space and time that we never had, that was spacious, that is spacious and that's capacious. That stopping of time, and Jesus stopped, and I love these words, that Jesus can actually stop for one little teeny statistic, one out of, uh, out of the thousands or the hundreds. He can stop in front of you, and he stopped. It says, Jesus stopped. When Jesus stopped, everything stopped too. All the wasted time, all the flow of things rushing on ahead of, uh, ahead of you and past you stops as well. When you call upon the name of the Lord, break through awkwardness, break through the fear of what people will think. Something stops, something cosmic stops. Something of God stops your circumstances, your history, your definitions, all the speakings of people, and everybody stops, everything stops. There's a, almost a bubble, an infinite bubble of God's presence that stops time. By the sheer density of God's, God's sense, God's power, His very being, that time stops at the sheer presence of the mighty God, the God who is beyond weight, beyond time, beyond anything. He is the eternal God. That means He is not only time that goes on forever, but He is the very density of, in, of infinite presence to such an extent that by His command, by His paying of attention to you, by His calling you, everything that happened up to, up to now is stopped. That's an amazing thing. That is an amazing thing that in spite of the fact that time has passed you by and you may be at the end of your rope, at the end of the road, God can stop time because He's God. Only a God can do that. No one else can do that. The president can't do that. The kings can't do that. The pastor for sure can't do that. A doctor can't do that. A lawyer can't do that. A judge can't do that. Only a God can do that. And when God stops things, He gives you time in slow motion, to respond to him. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And it is, and it is this presence that overrides the passing time and arrests everything. I was just listening to, to someone in our church who's a nurse who has been uh, um, uh, working 12 hours a day in uh, uh, neonatal prenatal and um, pediatric wards, I believe. And she is so busy that she has hardly time to rest. It's a, it's a function of God's grace that she's actually working so hard and still um, uh, doing so well. God healed her when she came to our church. She was very, very poorly and um, very, 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 very sick. But God healed her to such an extent that she, she can actually sustain one and a half years or more of 12-hour 12 12 hour days. 
But she tells she told uh, Cindy, this is what I do. Every day in the morning, I just welcome the Holy Spirit. I welcome the Holy Spirit and I look out for Him. And when I go to work, I find the Holy Spirit is with me and I keep, my t- keep in touch with the Holy Spirit. I keep Him there with me. And sometimes when, I, when, I, when I'm working, I can see wings out of the corner of my, of my eye. And I ask, were they angels' wings or doves' wings? Maybe it was doves' wings, but I can see it. I, I can imagine that. And it seems as if God's presence is with me. And you know what? She tells us again and again of times in which babies who are meant to be dead, babies who are so sick and so filled with pain that their backs arch for 23 hours of the day, uh, something like that, in which they're so in pain that they're screaming they only have one hour that they can sleep because they're so filled with pain. And she says, all I do is this. I just call them and I sing to them. I pray for them and they are calm. Again and again, she has shared about tremendous miracles that have taken place as she would hold these babies who have some of them, some of them been abandoned by um, society. And she shared about something that happened just recently. She said they were, um, they were operating on a baby and there was a lot of, a lot of people in this operating theater. And she, and as they were as they were working on the baby, because there was supposed to be a um, um, uh, um, a cesarean operation to actually take the baby out because the baby was in danger, the baby flatlined, and uh, and they worked frantically to try to get the baby out, but uh, it looked like he was not going to make it, and she prayed, as is her habit. You see, because she had developed a habit of bringing the Holy Spirit into everything that she did. And she prayed. And as they brought the baby out, the baby was breathing. And everybody was silent. They could not believe. They were astonished, staggeringly, that the baby was completely fine. She looked at the doctor and she says, Did you see that? He said, Yeah. I saw that. I was praying for the baby. I was praying for the baby, that the baby would start, the heart would start moving again. And there was such a sense of awe in the operating theater, she said, when the baby came out, living. Praise God. You know, everything stops when you call upon the name of Jesus and you're willing to not live, call upon him from the point of view of being bound by what other people think. There is something about the kingdom of God that sometimes comes not smooth. If you're bound by smooth, you are still not driven by a compelling, more important divine impulse. And there's a way in which sometimes things are not smooth. Then the man called out to Jesus and God, in the God of time, somehow stops everything to listen to someone who's willing to, in the midst of the flow of time, stop everything. He stopped everybody from speaking. I love this part. Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped. What an amazing thing. That in the midst of all that uh, is, is going on, Jesus stopped everything. When we call out, a connection happens. Time stops. Isn't that amazing? I've been talking to, the, to, to some of our folks um, in a group that we had on Wednesday about what happened in Dunkirk. 1940. May 1940, the Nazis burst through and broke through the Low Countries into France and tore and ripped them apart and became so powerful that what would result out of that would be that um, Britain would be overrun. The reason why is because about 180,000 of British troops were trapped in uh, um, northern France. And there was no way back. 
Calais and um, and another uh, port, British port in France, were completely devastated. The, Brit- the, the Germans went really fast. And the only place, only port that was left was Dunkirk. So 180,000 British troops were bunched up in Dunkirk. And there was no time to build up um, defenses against the onrushing um, German army. And the German army had about one day before they would catch up with the trapped um, British and Allied forces. There were also another about 150 other soldiers from um, the Belgian and French um, contingent. And so Dunkirk was a, was a do-or-die day in which there was absolutely no hope for salvation. The Germans were coming very fast with their tanks and, um, and just destroying everything uh, in their way. Anyone of you who knows Reese Howells will know that during that time, King George VI had asked the whole nation to pray. And, uh, and um, Churchill said, we only have uh, warships and, uh, contain- and, and, and passenger ships enough to save 30,000 soldiers. That's all. There were over 300,000 soldiers stranded with the Nazis breathing down upon them with one day left before they actually completely devastated everything. Reese Howells and the Wales Bible College felt the leading of the Lord to just begin to intercede. So they they interceded every hour in the hour. May 24th, they began to intercede to such an extent that they began to feel that in the midst of the, the, the terrible devastation, that the Germans were, 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 were bringing forth upon France, on the northern part of France, on the way to trapping, to trapping and destroying the Allied forces. Uh, they prayed until they felt something take hold. Something take hold. And that's why in daily prayer, what we want to do is to be able to get a sense of how, how to sense God moving in our prayer to such an extent that in our own senses, we can sense the breakthrough, the taking hold of God, and they sensed it. Do you know what happened? For no explicable reason, Hitler halted the advance of the German German, uh, troops for one day. And in that one day, during the time of prayer, a number of miracles happened, including the rising up of clouds for the next few days that stopped any kind of visibility from the, for, for the German Stukas. That were, these were the fighter bombers. And during that time, statistics that basically said there's only 30,000 men that, can be, that could be uh, rescued were blown out of the water because there was a call for anyone who had a little boat, a boat, any kind of boat, a, a, a fishing boat, a trawler, a, a little dinghy, um, a, 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 a boat for fun, a yacht, and all. just come. Any British boat that would come, would come. The statistics didn't show that. The statistics didn't show the effect of prayer, and they did not show the effects of 800 boats, little boats, each doing their part, each, each of them doing, kind of going back and forth to actually rescue the soldiers. At the end of it, by June uh, 1st, I believe, um, 338,000 British and Allied troops had been saved beyond the statistics. There is a dynamic beyond the flat, inert stats that is, that is at work that is the real dynamic, stats show, don't show the dynamic, the stats show numbers. But underneath, there's a God who's at work, and there are other things that are at work in the human spirit uh, in, that, in that sense. I, I'm amazed that actually God can cause time to stop, and actually he stopped it by one day, plus all the other stuff that was actually going, going, going on to uh, rescue the... 338,000. 800 boats, little boats came besides the 
larger ships. And it was found that the larger ships could not even go near to the shore because there was a shelf that was very shallow. They couldn't have done it to the full extent anyway. And so it was the little boats that actually made a lot of difference. Sometimes you don't know. Sometimes you just don't know. During that whole time, Lord Downing, the chief air Air marshal, said, we could all feel, even during the bombing, that the hand of special intervention were over us for the whole time. I want to put it to you that you may not feel you're on the road. You're not on the road with God or on the road with life. But God is at work. And if you consider your spiritual life, your life with God, of more compelling importance than how other people think of you and how people feed you, you will enter into that phrase when it says, Jesus, stop. And let's see what happened. Jesus stopped and said, call him here. And they called him, the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up. He's calling for you. I will put it to you that actually he took courage before they said anything. He already had taken courage. Courage is something that you say, I'm willing to pay the price. I'm willing to die to myself, die to my reputation. And when that happens, Courage comes. I found that many times when God says, do not fear, it, is always, it has to be preceded with a certain obedience. You, don't, you can't not fear. Fear only goes away when you obey and you say, God, okay, I'm willing to step onto it. I don't know what's going to happen and I need courage. You may be afraid, but as that happens, courage begins to grow and fear actually disappears. Stepping out takes away fear. Don't wait to, for fear to go before you step out. And it says here, verse 59, throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. Can you see the energy of that? He threw aside his cloak. You know what it means? He threw away his definition of himself. He refused to be defined by the cloak, the blind man's cloak, the the beggar's cloak. Actually, it's a beggar's cloak. He refused to be defined by that. He flung it aside and he jumped up. He didn't just stand up slowly. He had, it's almost as if it's a sprung motion. He, was, he got up with a spring, and that spring was this, has to do with a certain spiritual, powerful, demon, uh, um, um, uh, supernatural uh, power that was behind him. And when Jesus is referring to, 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 to his faith, he's referring to that. What is that thing that's like a sprung motion that causes you, without even worrying about it, to actually cast aside every definition with conviction of who you were, what happened to you before, your history, your past, your sin. It is this that caused the songwriter to say, my sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Isn't that amazing? You cannot talk like that if you haven't got that spring that started happening in you. And I want to put it to you that God is at work for you and me. He's stopping for you. He's stopping in the midst of the awkwardness. He's stopping at that place past smooth. When we die to our own self, our own reputation, we get cut loose. I want to put it to you that God is here. And if you call upon His name and you don't allow yourself to be defined by your past, by what people say, by what your fears are, you will experience a whole different presence, the presence of God. Let us pray. Because of the Lord of time entering in, into the swirling waters, the time that seems to pass us by, the Bible says in Hebrews, as long as it is called today, there's hope for us. As long as you have a today, God has hope for you. 
Lord, we thank you right now for a message that goes beyond our, the words, Lord, a message that goes beyond human words. And even now, you're coming, Holy Spirit, in between these words and our, even in between our understanding. And Lord, I just thank you right now for the word, Joel 2. Even when an army was coming against Israel, an army that represented locusts that are in perfect formation, and just would overrun everything. They're perfectly in formation because they cannibalize each other. That's why these locusts and these kinds of armies are in perfect array to stay away from one another. But God it has goodness for us. And he says in verse 12, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, And rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. So Lord, we thank you right now. You're calling many of us to return to you on the road. And we admit we've been blind. We admit, God, we're blinded by the world, but we're sometimes blinding ourselves. Lord, help us. Help us, Lord God, right now. We throw these things aside right now in Jesus' name, and we run to you. We run to a face-to-face God with you right now. And we say, Lord, we want to live like this every day because we know that the world has no hope without you. And you've said the world has no hope, God, unless we begin to stand up, Lord Jesus, for what you're doing. So, Lord, we join your army. That's a good army, Lord God. We give you our boats right now, Lord Jesus. We give you our lives. We will push out a bit and we'll say, Lord, come. Come and bring those, God, that you've given to each one of us. We've been hearing that if we do this, suddenly people will come that we had not seen before. So we pray for those people right now that you're going to give each one of us to invite, to look for, to pray for. We pray for each one in our boat. In Jesus' name. And we welcome you. You know, Lord, we, we find ourselves sometimes sitting by the road. Sometimes we find we have no faith or energy. But because you are there with a more compelling reason than for us to stay in our place, you can stop for us. So we call upon you. I want to invite you to just call upon God. I want to invite you to call upon the name of the Lord. I want to invite you, those of you who have never had a prayer life, you can actually grow in prayer. That you can hear the voice of God, learn how to detect the voice of God, and to be in fellowship with Him. There's something about that way in which we are bound to Him, that connected in which God pays attention, that every moment becomes a Jesus stop moment for us. And in that Jesus stop moment, he takes all of, the, all of the cosmos and all his heavenly angels and centers it upon just you and me. Lord, we welcome you, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Break through every awkwardness, every rejection, everything of our history that has defined us and that has limited us. And we invite you to come and blow it up right now. In the name of Jesus, we welcome you. The presence to come and sit and stop. We too, Lord, turn our eyes towards you. There is time because you're the Lord of time, so we welcome you that no matter how far behind we seem or we feel that we are, you are able to not only catch up but put us on pace with you. And so we recognize that it requires our whole life, so we give you our whole life. And we surrender our whole life to you, Lord. We pray for every person who somehow has been bound by fear of this, of, of offending or, or being rejected. We pray for every person who's been somehow sidelined, for every person who up to now 
has been Christian but not really experienced the reality of God. We thank you, Lord. You can change all that in one Jesus-stopped moment. And so we welcome you, Lord. Like he who at the beginning of the passage was described as sitting by the road, but at the end of the passage was described as joining him on the road. In Jesus' name, amen.